You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 6, and we'll read together verses 35 through 40. We'll be looking this morning at verse 40. John 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. It is our guide, and in it you have given us not only a revelation of yourself and your will, but you have also told us of things that happened before you ever created this world, a plan of redemption that was designed within the members of the Trinity that is for your glory and for our benefit. We thank you for that salvation and for that revelation. We ask that you would help us to understand your word as we go through it and give us insight, and may your word be our guide. And, O Spirit of God, may you be our teacher here. We ask in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, it is the, I think, the undeniable reality of church history ever since the time of the apostles that there has always existed within the visible church the true Christians and the false Christians. That is to say, there are people within any local body like such as this one or within what appears to be the visible church in any country at any time those who are truly regenerate, truly saved, who have been born again, their lives have been changed, their affections have been changed, they have repented, they have trusted Christ, they have salvation. And at the same time, in, in an almost awkward fashion, there exists alongside of those people, the false Christians, people who creep in unaware, people who uh, say they are Christians, they look like Christians, they sound like Christians, they pretend to be Christians, and they may even think that they are Christians. But in reality, they are not because they've never been born again. They've never repented of their sins, and they're not truly born again. And a lot of passages in the New Testament are written with the express purpose of warning us about this reality, that there always exists wheat among the tares. Sorry, tares among the wheat. Got those backwards. There always exists tares among the wheat, goats among the sheep. And entire books like 1 John are written just for the purpose that we might know the difference between the true and the false. The true believer and the false believer, the one who makes a profession of faith and the one who really truly is born again and has saving faith. And so we are encouraged in Scripture to test ourselves to see if we be in the faith. We are given in passages of Scripture that tell us the difference between the true and the false so that we might know by what we are to determine who is a true believer and who is a false believer. There are sheeps, uh, sorry, wolves among the sheep. And those wolves are in sheep's clothing. There are those who profess to have a faith. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of godliness. There are those who profess to be Christians, but they are not genuinely, truly Christians. That has been the condition of the church since the day of Pentecost. You even see it in the New Testament. And some of the epistles in the New Testament were written to warn against that reality. There are always those who pretend to be sheep, amongst the sheep, 
And it is worse in countries where there is no persecution. Because one of the undeniable benefits of persecution, there is a benefit and it is a benefit, is that the church is pure in countries where the church is persecuted. Because when the sheep are persecuted, goats don't show up and pretend to be sheep. For obvious reasons. Because it costs them their lives to do so. And so in our nation, we have a visible church in our country that is populated, I think, predominantly by people who appear to be Christian, who are hangers-on, who name the name of Christ and profess faith in Christ but are not actually saved. So if that's the case, then it should not surprise us if we know of people who for a time make a profession of faith in Christ, come and pretend to be godly, come and pretend to be Christians, but then after a period of time fall away. If you've been a believer for any length of time, then you have run into those people, have you not? People who for a period of time have professed faith in Christ, they have come to Christ, they apparently want salvation, they have asked Jesus into their heart, or they have made Jesus Lord of their lives, or they have had any kind of, some sort of a conversion experience, an intense religious zeal, and maybe they have even been baptized, and then they have taken the Lord's Supper for a period of time, but after a period of time, that enthusiasm, that zeal sort of wanes, and before long, they're wandering off through the back door of the church, and they're out, and after a couple of years, they have no desire in the things of Christ at all. They're not interested in Christianity, they're not interested in following Christ, though they made a profession of faith for a period of time. I just was on the phone yesterday afternoon with a friend that I went to Bible college with, and he was telling me about a man that was his roommate while we were in Bible college that was a friend of both of ours, whose faith I emulated or tried to emulate. This was a what I consider to be a, a man of far greater spiritual caliber than me, uh, a lover of Christ, who today is acting for all intents and purposes like an unbeliever. Makes no profession of faith whatsoever, and he's walked away from the faith. Now, you and I both observe people like that, and then we ask the right question, what happened? What has happened with a person like that? What transpired that they were once a solid, firm believer with a seeming faith in Christ, chasing hard and pursuing hard after Christ, but now today they are not? What is What has transpired? Well, I will first give you the wrong answer to that question. The wrong answer to that question is this, and this is how some people view the situation and then they come up with this answer. They will say, well, obviously he was saved for a period of time. He followed hard after Christ. He was growing. He was sanctified. He had a spiritual gift, apparently. And he hung, had a hunger for righteousness and a hunger and thirst after the things of God. But then because of his own inherent weaknesses or his own lack of faith or his own lack of ability to continue in the things of God or by his own sin or by his own choice, he has walked away from Christ. And so though he once possessed salvation, he now no longer has salvation And he has turned his back on the Lord, and God has either taken away his eternal life or he has given it back to his eternal life, whichever the case may be. That's the wrong conclusion. That's the wrong answer to the question, what has happened? Because really the question is not, how did they once have salvation and now not have salvation? The question is, how is it, or were they actually saved to begin with? That's the essential question. Did they actually truly possess saving faith? Or did they merely possess, uh, profess saving faith? There's a difference between possessing saving faith and professing saving faith. My answer to the question would be this. This was an individual who clung to Christianity for a period of time, maybe for the benefits. He came to Jesus and asked Jesus into his heart, but Jesus didn't stick around because salvation is not asking Jesus into your heart. Salvation is repenting of your sin and trusting in the sacrifice which is atoned for your sin and being born again and given new affections. 
And those who are in that camp, who have been born again, are kept by the Son, preserved by the Son for eternity. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of the Father's hand, and they will not jump out of the Father's hand. So those who profess a faith in Christ for a period of time and then fall away are not truly saved to begin with. So it should not surprise us that when things get tough or when Jesus doesn't meet their expectations or demands, that they would turn and walk away and abandon the faith the faith that they profess. As grievous as that is to us, that I think is the reality. And that is in fact the very thing that Jesus is describing is not possible for somebody who truly belongs to him in John chapter 6. And we're looking at John chapter 6, particularly verses 37 through 40. Today we're focusing in on verse, verse 40. In verse 37, we saw that the Father has given a people to the Son, that all that the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son, and all who come to the Son, the Son will not cast out. He will receive them all. How is it that Jesus can make such an incredible claim, such, a, such an ironclad promise? He can make that because the Son always exists and lives and always does the will of the Father absolutely, infallibly, and perfectly. And it is impossible for the Son to fail to do the Father's will because the Son is neither unwilling nor unable to do the will of the Father. And if the Father has given to Him a people to save and to preserve, the Son will do that infallibly and fully and all the way to the end of time. And He will not lose any of them. That is verse 39. Because the Son does the will of the Father, because the Son is not a failure, and He cannot fail to do the will of the Father, then whatever the Father has willed, the Son will do. And what has the Father willed for the Son in regards to the Son? That the Son will receive all whom the Father has given to Him, and that the Son will give eternal life to all whom the Father has given to Him, and that the Son will keep and preserve all of them, and that the Son will lose none of them, but raise all of them up on the last day. That is the will of the Father for the Son. Now, what is the will of the Father for us? This is verse 40. The will of the Father for us is that we would behold the Son and believe on the Son. Now, I mentioned last week that verse 39 and verse 40 describe this enterprise of salvation from two different vantage points. In verse 39, we have the divine vantage point. In other words, Jesus and John describing salvation from the divine perspective is able to say the Father is given to the Son of people and the Son will preserve all of them infallibly and fully. The Son cannot fail. He will keep all of them and lose none of them. That's the divine sovereignty side. On the other side of that very same coin, and it's not a conflicting or contradicting doctrine, is the teaching in verse 40 that the will of the Father is that everyone that He has given to the Son is going to behold the Son and believe upon the Son and receive eternal life and be raised up on the last day. So it doesn't matter whether you describe it from the divine side or from the human side, we are still left with this infallible thing, and that is the will of God for this people that He has given to the Son. From the divine perspective, He keeps us. From the human vantage point, we behold the Son and believe. And we receive eternal life. We, these are real choices that we make, real consequences to those choices, and a real thing that we experience on the human side. But notice that verse 39, which talks about the divine side, and verse 40, which present the human side, both of them begin with what? This is the will of God. Because ultimately, salvation is not dependent on the man who wills, but it depends upon God who wills. So Jesus is teaching on the security of the believer, and I would affirm 100% in the absolute security of the believer in his salvation, but I would also affirm the absolute insecurity of the make-believer in his salvation. If you make-believe your salvation... You are as insecure as the day is long. But if you truly possess saving faith in Christ, you are as secure as you can possibly be. Jesus is teaching on the security of the believer in his salvation in verses 39 and 40. And he presents 
both elements side by side. And once again, I would allow you to notice there's no contradiction or conflict between the two, between the sovereignty of God and the very real and meaningful choices that men and women make that have eternal consequences, the choice to believe and the need to believe and the action of responding in belief to the Son that is a real human choice. Both of these are presented side by side. It didn't bother the human writers to present them that way. It didn't bother the Holy Spirit to present it that way. And it shouldn't bother us as 2,000 years later to read it that way without thinking that we somehow have to cram those two together and sacrifice one at the expense of the other to make them fit. So let's take a look at verse 40. This is the human side of salvation. Jesus says, This is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. There are... Two verbs there, beholding and believing. This promise is given, the beginning of verse 40, to everyone who beholds the Son. Who is the everyone spoken of? Is Jesus talking about all of humanity in verse 40? Is it all of humanity that beholds the Son and believes on the Son? Obviously it's not. There were people in the very crowd to whom He is addressing that were not believing on Him. Look at verse 36. There were some who saw Him and yet did not believe. So this promise is to everyone who beholds and believes. And the everyone that receives life in this verse is not the everyone in all of humanity. This promise is to this very same group that Jesus and John have been describing since verse 37. It is this group who has been given by the Father to the Son. That's the everyone of verse 40. Once again, Jesus is addressing the the totality of this group and this action that is true to all of this group. The Father has given a people to His Son. All of them come. All of them behold the Son. All of them believe. All of them receive eternal life. All of them the Son receives. And all of them are raised up on the last day. This is just another way of Jesus describing the totality of this group. Since He loses none in verse 37, the flip side of that is everyone of this group, since none are lost, it's everyone who believes in Uh, beholds the Son and believes in the Son. Now, who is it that is going to behold the Son and believe in the Son? It is this group who will come to the Son. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and they will behold the Son, and they will believe the Son. Why? Because it's their will? No, because it is the will of the Father. That of everybody that the Father has given to the Son, will behold the Son and will believe upon the Son. That's the Father's will for us. The Father's will for His Son is that He keep all whom He has given to Him. The Father's will for us is that all whom He has given to the Son will behold the Son and believe upon the Son. Those two verbs, beholding and believing, are both present participles indicating something that has a continuing action. It's something that happened and is continuing to happen. It's an, an ongoing process, not something that happened at a time. It's an ongoing process, and that is what describes the faith of those who are truly born again. They behold and are beholding continually the Son. They believe and are continually believing in the Son. It is the one who beholds and is beholding, and the one who believes and is presently believing in the Son that has eternal life. They're ongoing actions. It's not a mere glance toward Christ that saves. It's not somebody briefly lifting their head from the activities of life and saying, Oh, Jesus. Yeah, I'll add Him to what I'm doing now and then go on about my business. And I'm good to go. I'm saved. I'm preserved. I'm kept. I have my fire insurance and I can just plot on with my life and from this point forward totally ignore the Son. That's not what's being described. What describes the faith of the elect, what describes the faith of those given by the Father to the Son, 
is that they behold the Son and continually behold the Son. They believe upon the Son, and that belief does not stop. It does not fade. It does not waver. It does not peter out. It does not stop at some point in time. It continues all the way to the end. Because their faith is not a human faith, which lasts like the crowd, but a divine faith, which is permanent. It continues. It's continual. And it goes on and on and on. So somebody who has once believed or looked to Christ, like those in the crowd, and then turned away from Christ, has no assurance whatsoever. You can't have any assurance. The only grounds for your assurance is if you have beheld the Son, and you have believed upon the Son, and you are continuing in your belief to the Son. That is the grounds for assurance. That is what describes the belief of those who truly belong to Him, who have been given by the Father to the Son. And all of those given by the Father to the Son will have that type of belief. All of them. Not one will be lost. Not one can be lost. All of them will have that faith. Because everyone whom the Father has given to the Son will behold the Son and believe. Two verbs, beholding and believing. Now you'll notice verse 40 and verse 36, ironically, both have the idea of seeing something and believing. Look at verse 36, because there is a, a contrast here between verse 36 and verse 40. Verse 36, Jesus said, I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Now look at verse 40. This is the will of my Father, and everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. Two types of seeing, and then the mention of believing in both passages. There are those in verse 36 who did not believe, though they had seen the Son. And the word used in verse 36 for see simply means to take in with the physical eyes. It means to behold or see something physically. The word used for seeing in verse 40 or beholding in verse 40 is a different word. And it doesn't mean just taking something in with the physical eyes. It has to do with a comprehending and a perceiving something. And we use the word see in that way today. When you're explaining something to your child and you say, do you see what I'm saying to you? Obviously, you don't mean do you see with my physical eyes, but do you what? Do you perceive and comprehend and get what I'm trying to explain to you? That's the idea. That's the word that's used in verse 40. It's not just those who see physically with the eyes. It is those who... Ah, I see it. I get it. I have not only beheld it with my eyes of faith, but I have perceived it. I understand it. I get it. The the blinders have been taken off. The light has come on. And I see the truth now like I never saw it before. If you're saved, then there was some point in your life where it clicked. And you got it. You understood it. You had seen it maybe with your eyes beforehand. You had maybe understood certain facts about Christ, but there came a point where you didn't just see it, but you saw it. The promise of verse 40 is that there will be some who will see Christ. Though they've never seen Him with their eyes, they will see Him with the eyes of faith. They will see Him with their understanding. They will get it, and they will believe. Those who have not been given by the Father to the Son, in verse 36, they see with the eye, but they don't see it. They don't get it. They don't behold and they don't believe. And because they did not see, behold, with the understanding and perceive, they did not believe. But there are some, like us today, who have never seen Christ with the physical eyes. But if we beheld Him with our understanding, with the eyes of faith, we certainly have. We've seen the truth. We understand the truth. We perceive the truth. We comprehend it. We get it. And we have believed. That's the type of sight being described in verse 40. This is the will of the God. This is the will of the Father. That of all that He has given to the Son, they will behold the Son with eyes of faith. And they will believe upon the Son and trust in the Son. And what will the Son do? He will give them eternal life. How is it that you can have two people in the same room 
hearing the same gospel message, maybe even from the same family, and one of them gets it, and one of them walks away unconverted and hardened. How is that possible? That happened to me the day, the instant I got saved. I was sitting with two of my best friends in the whole world. We spent all our time together. We did everything together. We went to camp together, and I sat there in that same room, and I heard the same speaker. We shared the same cabin. We were sitting in the same row. We were in similar proximity to one another, separated by girls, but we were in similar proximity to one another, sitting there, and I heard the same speaker that they heard. I heard the same gospel message that they heard. I had memorized the same verses that they had memorized. We had studied the same passage, had the same cabin devotions. And I perceived it, and I believed, and neither of them to this day have. What makes one to differ from the other? What makes one to differ from the other? The will of man? Verse 37 and 40. I was given by the Father to the Son. And the will of the Father was that I would behold and I would believe. And I beheld and I believed. There's nothing special about me. I'm not smarter than the other two guys. I'm dumber than probably both of them. There's nothing more spiritual about me. One of the other guys came from a long history of Christians. He had everything going for him. Uh, Christian parents, Christian grandparents, Christian aunts, Christian uncles, Christian cousins, Christians all over the place had grown up in the church I never had. Why me and not the other guy? At least to this day, why me and not the other guy? Maybe the other guy has been given by the Father to the Son. His time is later. But why can we both hear the same gospel message and assuming that he dies in his sins and perishes, what makes one to differ from the other? It's nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with me. What does Jesus give the credit to? The Father gave the people to the Son. The Son will save them. He will secure them. He will keep them. He will lose none of them. They will behold. They will believe. He will give them eternal life. And he will raise them up at the last day. That is what causes one to differ from another. And if God had done none of that, we would all perish. For not one of us would behold, not one of us would believe, not one of us would receive eternal life, and not one of us would be raised up on the last day. If it were not for the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in our salvation. That's what makes one to differ from the other. And we will be raised up on the last day. It is all of those who behold and believe who are raised up. You notice that? We're given eternal life and we are raised up. That's the completion of the process. Eternal life for us is not something that we are waiting to get. It is something that if you have trusted Christ, you have it right now. It's not, not even proper to say that when I die, I will get eternal life. Or when I get to heaven, I'll get eternal life. Or when I'm hoping that God will give me eternal life. Or I'm eventually going to acquire eternal life or be given eternal life. That's entirely an improper way to talk as a Christian. If you're a believer, you have eternal life now. And it's not a future hope, it's a present reality. And you're not experiencing today all that your eternal life means, but you possess it because the life that you have now is eternal, and it is the same life that you will have all the way through your death and all the way through into eternity. You're not getting another kind of life when you die. You're going to live in the same life that you live now. And it's eternal life because Christ has given it, and you can never perish, and it will never end. When I believed and beheld, sitting there in that chair, hearing that gospel message, I beheld the Son, understood it, and I believed, and at that moment, I was given a life that will be mine that can never perish and it will never end. And it can never be taken away from me because I cannot be lost, but instead I would be raised up on the last day. That's Jesus' promise. It is everyone who beholds the Son and believes in the Son who is raised up. How can he say everyone? Because the Son has promised to lose none. And if the Son loses none, then how many are raised up? This is simple math. I mean, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but you all understand this. If none are lost... All of them will be raised up. Every one of them will be raised up. Being raised up at the end of time, in verse 
40 here. It's mentioned again in verse 44. It's mentioned in verse 39. It's mentioned again in verse 54. Four times in the passage it's mentioned. In verse 39, Jesus says, I will raise it up on the last day, because in verse 39, he's speaking of the entire company of God's elect, this entire body of people that was given to him by the Father in verse 37. But in verse 40, he personalizes it, I will raise him up on the last day. So now it becomes personal. What is spoken of in verse 39 is corporate, all of us together. But it's not only all of us together, it's all of us individually. It's the him of verse 40. We individually are raised up. And women, you're not left out of this. Women are included in the him because it's a... Uh, whatever you call it, a universal hymn. I mean, any sense at all, did it? It's a universal hymn. It's all believers. Every individual believer is raised up on the last day. This is not just for saints who have been saved since they were four and have lived a sanctified and holy life and acquire something that the rest of us don't acquire at the end of time when they die. It applies to the saint who's been a saint for 90 years, lived a holy life. But it also applies to the person who gets saved two weeks before they die on their deathbed, as it were, and barely squeaks in and is saved by the skin of his teeth getting into heaven, saved so as by fire. The same promise, it is all of us that are raised up on the last day. And that's the resurrection spoken of in John chapter 5 when Jesus said the day is coming when all of the dead are going to hear the voice of the Son of God and I will raise all of them up and some to eternal life and some to eternal death. Some to resurrection of judgment and some to a resurrection of eternal life. That's the same resurrection. The first resurrection, what's also known as the resurrection of the just, we receive that, all of us. We spend eternity in a physical body on a recreated earth. I just wish I could get my head just around that doctrinal truth. But four times Jesus promises this. All of you who have placed your faith in Christ will be raised up on the last day. The Son has promised it and He has given His word and He will lose none of them. Why? Because that is the will of the Father. And if I perish or you perish or even one single solitary believer perishes, even one, then the Son has failed to do what the Father sent Him to do. All of them have to be raised up because Christ is a perfect Savior and He will say perfectly and fully and infallibly all whom the Father has given to Him. That is a glorious, glorious promise in verse 40. That is the Father's will. Now, does that happen apart from our belief? Does that happen apart from our belief? In spite of our belief or through our belief? It happens through belief. See, this passage actually corrects two errors. Let me give them to you quickly. The first error is that mere belief is all that is necessary. When I got saved with my two friends sitting on each side of me, when I got saved that day, I went back to the cabin and I was weeping that night because I was overwhelmed with what Christ did to me. And I asked both of them, you know, did you guys get saved too? And I thought, I thought if, if it hit me, it had to have hit everybody else in the room as well. But they seemed absolutely unfazed by it. And I said, did you guys get saved too? Oh yeah, we've asked Jesus into our heart. I became a Christian. Yeah, I prayed the prayer. I did my thing. And absolutely unfazed. And now they were off chasing girls again. Well, my life was radically changed. Theirs wasn't changed at all. And I wondered, how could this be? Well, now I know why. Because it's not mere faith that is sufficient to save. If it were, then all of the crowd in John 2 who followed Jesus when they saw the signs and believed on Him would have been saved, but they weren't. In fact, Jesus said, John says Jesus didn't commit Himself to any of them. Or if mere faith was all that was necessary, just a mere belief, just an intellectual assessment, then the whole crowd in John 6 would have been saved as well. But they weren't. They came to the Son. They followed Him because of the miracles. They partook of His blessings. They wanted to make Him king. They experienced a religious zeal for a period of time. But that faith was not enough to save them. Because it was not true, genuine faith. It was temporary faith. It was not saving faith. It was not true faith. It was a faith that was seeking after Jesus for what they could get not after Him because He is the giver of every good gift. They didn't want Jesus. They wanted His benefits. That's the type of faith that they had. 
So mere faith is not sufficient to save. There's a second error that's corrected by the passage. One of them was over here that mere faith, just an intellectual assessment, is all that is necessary. Praying the prayer, asking Jesus into your heart, experiencing religious zeal or a conversion experience, that's all that's necessary. That's one error. The other error is actually on the other side of the spectrum. And that is the error that says belief is not necessary. This sort of takes two flavors. One of them is what has historically been called hyper-Calvinism, and that is the idea that man doesn't need to respond to the gospel. Because if God's going to save all of his elect, and all of them are going to be saved anyway, then there's no need to press upon anybody the need to repent and believe. There's no need to present the gospel as in terms of the person hearing it needing to respond through repentance and faith and coming to Christ and laying down their lives and abandoning all for the sake of the gospel. There's no need to present the gospel at all to people because if the elect are going to be saved, God will do it without us. And without us asking people to respond to it. And so belief is not even necessary. You don't even have to present the gospel because it's not necessary. Is that true? That's a horrible error. It's heresy. It's heresy. The, the biblical way of presenting the gospel is to press upon people the need to respond. You must repent and you must believe. Because your repentance is a real thing. It is a gift of God. But it is something that you do and something you experience. And so is your belief. Nobody is saved apart from belief. The elect can't be saved. It's only those who believe will be saved. All of the elect will believe, but you must believe and you must repent. So not only is mere belief not sufficient, but belief is required. True, saving, regenerating faith and belief. Because nobody can be saved apart from belief. A second flavor of the second, a second flavor, a second strain, I guess, just to say, of the second error. I'm glad I have a stage up here that I can kind of do these on two sides so you can keep it separate in your mind is um, a, a universalism, the teaching of universalism. That's the idea that in the end, everybody's going to be saved. It doesn't matter whether you're a Hindu or a, a Muslim or a Buddhist or a, a Sikh or a, a Mormon or a Catholic, a Jehovah's Witness or whatever it is. If you're sincere and you sincerely believe, then eventually love is going to win. Like Rob Bell's recent book, Love's Going to Win, and the Gospel and the Grace are going to cover everybody. Everybody gets in by Jesus even if you don't even know Jesus. You're just, you're covered under the blood. You're covered under the, or, uh, what Jesus is going to do. And it's by your sincerity, not because you have all your doctrinal ducks in a row, but by your sincerity, he will attribute your sincerity as faith. And even though you don't know Jesus, make no profession of faith in Jesus, everybody is going to win because in the, in the end, love wins. That was the name of the book. It's basically universalism. If I had published the book, I would have subtitled it, The Gospel Loses. Love wins and the gospel loses because that's exactly what happens. The gospel loses in a belief like that because not everybody is going to be saved. It's only those who believe that will be saved. And all who believe will be saved because that is the will of the Father. And if you believe that is God's ironclad guarantee to you, that you will never perish and nobody will ever snatch you out of the Son's hand. That's his promise. Now, some people have what James White calls chicken coop theology. Chicken coop theology. I love this designation. I've been waiting for a long time to use it, and today's as good a day as any to give you this. Chicken coop theology. You ever been in a chicken coop? You've been in a chicken coop? Now, at least all the chicken coops that I've been into, this is what characterizes them. Maybe your chicken coop is different. Okay, so if I'm not describing your chicken coop, then don't come up to me afterwards and say, well, you need to come and see my chicken coop because it's different. Every chicken coop that I have been into looks like this. You have basically one wall, and all of the little hens have their own little box, their own little compartment, right? And they're all sort of separated by a by a wall, and I don't know if that's because hens don't like to look at each other when they're laying eggs or why that is, but they all have their own little compartments and they're all separated and they're all stacked up along the one wall of the chicken coop. Some people have chicken coop theology, and here's how it works. 
You have a belief about the atonement that you put in this compartment and a belief about the sovereignty of God that you put in this compartment and a belief about election you put in this compartment and a belief about human free will that you put in this compartment. Then you have your belief about eternal security here and then you have your belief about Jesus being an all-sufficient perfect Savior over here in this compartment. And as long as your theologies don't come out and have to look at each other and associate with each other, then you can live with these glaring contradictions in your head because you keep them all in their little compartments. That's how you can have somebody who can believe over in this compartment that they can lose their salvation and the salvation can be lost. And at the same time have another compartment over here where they believe that Jesus is a perfect Savior who can never fail. And if they ever pulled these two theologies out and made them look at each other over John 6, they would see these two hens don't get along. They're at odds with each other and they contradict each other. If I believe that Jesus is a perfect Savior, I must believe in the security of his people. Because I don't believe he's a failure. And then you can have the other person who has the little theology over here that says, I believe that we are eternally secure. Eternal security, I'm all, all on board with it. Never can lose your salvation. I believe in the security of the believer. Then they have another compartment at the other end of the hen house where they have this theology that says that man is the final determiner of his salvation. That man is the captain of his fate. Man is the captain of his soul. That all det- it's all determined by the decision of men, by the will of men, by the act of men, the belief of men. And it, man is the final determiner in all of that. And that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have only sort of leveled the playing field and made it possible for us to cash in on what they have done. But everything hinges upon what I decide and what I do. And those two theologies, if they are ever brought out and made to face each other over the text of John 6, would fight. Like a couple of hens in a hen house, I guess. They would fight. Why is that? Because if you believe that man is the final determiner in all things regarding salvation and that the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with it, you cannot even begin to talk about security. It's a non-starter. If you believe that everything depends upon you, then you cannot possibly believe in the security of the believer. Is the believer secure? He is absolutely secure. But why does Jesus say that we are secure? Is it because of an act of my will? It's an act of the Father's will. Is it anything that I have done? No, it is something done by me, on behalf of me, by the Father, in giving me to his Son before time began. Is it my act of faith? Is it my belief? Ultimately, is it my love that determines it? It's not. It's what the Father has done and what the Father has willed. Does that mean I don't believe? No, I believe. It's the human side. The divine side is that the Father gave me to the Son. Friends, you are as secure today as the saints in heaven. Do you realize that? The saints in heaven may be happier than you are. I shouldn't say they may be. They are happier than you are. The saints in heaven are happier than you are, but they are no more secure. They're no more secure. You don't have to wait till you die to be secured. You are secure today in this earth in the midst of all the trials and the suffering, the tribulation, and the storms of life as Peter, Paul, Spurgeon, anybody who has gone before and has gathered around the, the throne of God in glory. The saints in heaven are happier, but they are no more secure. Why can we say that? Because the Father has willed it and the Son has promised it. That's it. It's not according to the man who wills or the man who runs. God has willed it and the Son has promised it. And thus we are secure in Him, held firm in the grip of Christ. And for that we praise Him. Let's pray together. Our God, we are grateful for such a salvation that has not only atoned for our sins and taken them out of the way, but has secured us everlastingly in your grace and in your grip. We thank you that our salvation rests not upon what we have done, but upon your will 
and what you have done for us. Thank you that we have experienced that grace. And I do pray, O oh God, that if there are people here who have never trusted in Christ for salvation, who are merely professors of eternal life and not possessors, that you would press upon their hearts the desire and the need to know Christ. In your mercy, O oh God, draw them near to you and draw them near to your Son that they may experience the grace that you have for them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.